If you have your uh, Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Philemon. Uh, It is a very small book. It's only about one page long. Not very many people know about it. I've been teaching this uh, youth group for the past three weeks, and uh, I had a student come up to me last week who who said, I didn't even know Philemon existed. I didn't even know this book existed. Uh, So it's a small book. You can use the table of contents if you have to. There's certainly no uh, shame in that. Even though we are um, diverting from our monster series, if you were here this last week, this, um, this passage actually serves as a very good extension to Pastor Mark's sermon last week about anger and forgiveness. And so if you will, you can almost consider this as a case study in what he was talking about last week in forgiveness. Um, Before we read, though, I do need to set up um, the book. This was a letter that Paul wrote to a man named Philemon, but I need to share a little backstory with you, um, because if you don't understand the backstory of the book, you won't understand it when we read. Um, And so let me just share with you this story before we read. There was once a guy named Philemon. Philemon was a very well-respected man. He was a spiritual leader. He was a church leader. He actually uh, housed a church in Colossae. He had a, uh, he had a church come and meet in his house. And people loved Philemon. He was a good, faithful, and loving man. He always seemed to be putting others, other interests ahead of his own. So much so that he actually built up a reputation People would talk about Philemon and say, this man is is faithful to God, and he loves other people. He loves other people. He was a good man. Now, Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. Now, don't think of slaves as we would in just our American history and American culture. Slaves were treated a lot better, I would say, Um, but they certainly didn't have all the rights that uh, normal citizens would have. They were secondhand citizens. Now, Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus was quite the opposite of Philemon. He was a hard worker, but he didn't necessarily believe the same things that Philemon did. He he wasn't sure about this whole God thing, this whole church thing. Onesimus wasn't sure about it. Onesimus lived his life the way that he wanted to, doing his own thing. And so one day, Onesimus decides... I'm done with being this slave. I'm done. I'm done with this. So he packed up his bags and he fled to Rome. Now Rome was a big city. It was like New York. Rome was huge. And Onesimus thought, if I just escape to Rome, I can hide in the crowd. I can escape from all of my problems. I can run away from my issues. Now with Onesimus running away, this was a very serious offense. In fact, by law, If slaves ran away, it could be punishable by death. Now, Onesimus decided to take the chance on that. He knew Philemon was loving. That was the reputation he had built up. And so he said, I'll take my chances that if I do get caught, Philemon won't put me to death. But he does flee. He flees to the big city. He tries to get away. He tries to um, escape into the vastness of the huge city. One day, Onesimus came across a man named Paul. Now, Paul was under house arrest. He was serving in prison. Paul wasn't a, a bad man, so to say. He, he, he had a good reputation as well, um, and he wasn't in prison for doing anything extremely bad. Onesimus was kind of confused. Paul was in prison because he kept talking about this thing that he called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was put in prison because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. And so Onesimus started talking with Paul. 
and building a relationship with Paul. He had heard about Paul because Philemon was actually friends with Paul. He had heard the tale about Paul leading Philemon to this Jesus guy. So Onesimus started building this relationship with Paul. Through time, he started running errands for him. He started working for the man. Paul, being under house arrest, couldn't leave. And so Onesimus was the one that went out and got things for him. Onesimus was the one that ended up working for Paul. And over time, through conversations with Paul, Onesimus realized, I want to know, I want to know more about this Jesus guy. I want to commit my life to Jesus. And so Paul introduced him to what a saving relationship with Jesus looks like. Once that happened, Paul knew that it was time to send Onesimus back to Philemon. He knew the potential danger in this, though. He knew that Philemon might have been upset with his slave, that probably cost Philemon financially, could have cost him other things quite substantially. And so Paul decides to sit down and write a letter on behalf of Onesimus, in defense of Onesimus. And this is what he says. Read with me. Follow along with me in the book of Philemon. This is the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear brother and fellow worker. To Ophia, our sister. To Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God for our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Depending on uh, the book, uh, all, most books have what we would call a preface, 
or an introduction. Um, and most of the time, if I'm completely honest, I just skip over those. I don't read the introduction or the preface. I probably should more often than I do, because oftentimes there's good chunks of information. For instance, a couple of weeks ago, I picked up a book um, that Pastor Mark had recommended to me as far as youth ministry was concerned. And for whatever reason, I, I read the preface, and there was solid information that, uh, that changed how I viewed certain things all within the preface of the book. I was confused. I thought, this is great stuff. Why isn't this in just the regular chapters? And so sometimes the preface has important things in the book. Um, in the same way, Philemon, in Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul has a preface. And as we dive right in here, we actually find this preface in verses 4 through 7. It doesn't really talk about the issue at hand, but we see Paul giving thanks for Philemon. We see Paul giving thanks for Philemon. And he actually, um, when, when, whenever Paul gave thanks for anybody, he generally, typically did this for three different reasons. The first reason was to build a good rapport with uh, the original reader. Okay, and so Philemon, this book is written to Philemon, but it actually is to be read. This letter is to be read in front of the whole church. And so in a sense, Paul is building just a, a warm relationship with Philemon and the church that meets in his home by almost like buttering up Philemon. He's making Philemon look really good. The second reason that Paul generally gives thanks is uh, to make an example out of just a specific virtue that Christians should follow. He makes an example out of somebody, and basically that's him telling everybody else, follow that example. Be uh, able to live a life that lives up to that example. And then finally, number three, generally when he gives thanks for someone, um, it actually introduces a conflict or a threat. It introduces a conflict or a threat to their spiritual growth. In a sense, what Paul is saying here, what he's doing, is saying... This is where you are spiritually. You are spiritually mature. This is where you are. And I'm about to tell you something that's going to threaten your spiritual growth. It's going to threaten your spiritual maturity. And so basically what he's saying is, live up to what I have seen and what I have heard from you. Live up to that. Live up to your name. Saying, this is what is at stake. And the two things that... The two qualities that he mentions about Philemon is that he's faithful to God and he has a love for the other saints. He's faithful to God and he has a love for the other saints. This encourages Paul. Of course it does. This is encouraging to me. When you see somebody who is loving others and they're known for their love, that is refreshing. Especially when the opportunity at hand lends you to react out of anger or hatred, when somebody chooses love when they could choose anger, that is refreshing. That is encouraging. It's refreshing. And after reminding Philemon that he's spiritually mature, Paul is telling him, this is what is at stake if you do not listen to what I'm about to ask you. This is what's at stake. And under that basis... Behind that, he brings a plea on behalf of Onesimus. And what does he say in verse 8 and 9? Paul has a motivation behind his plea. He has a motivation. What does he say? He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love 
on the basis of love. Paul's motivation behind his request is that of love. Have you ever been in a situation where an authority figure is telling you that you need to do something? Maybe it's a boss or a teacher or your parent, your mom or your dad, and you don't want to do it. And you're asking, why should I do this? Why do I have to do this? And you go back and forth. For me, the classic example of this was cleaning my room when I was younger. When I was younger, my mom and I would fight constantly about cleaning my room. And she would always want it clean, and I would never want to do it, and I would always ask her, why? Why, do, why is it so important to you that I clean my room? Why do I have to clean my room? And then my mother would pull out the trump cards of all trump cards that every single mom has either, I'm, I'm convinced every single mother has used this once in their life. She says, clean your room because I'm the mom, and I said so. Clean your room because I'm the mom and I said so. In a sense, Paul could have done this. Paul could have said, Philemon, you receive Onesimus back because I'm Paul and I said so. Paul could have told Philemon, I met Christ in the flesh. And Christ himself commissioned me. I am an apostle. I am over you. I have authority of you over you and I could be bold So do what I'm asking you because I'm Paul and I said so. He's saying, I could do that, Philemon, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to throw my authoritative weight around. Instead, I'm doing this out of love. I'm doing this out of love because I love you, because I love your church, and because I love Onesimus. In doing this, Paul clearly demonstrates how we, as authority figures, if you are in authority over anybody, how we should act. Always out of love. Do you have a right to throw around your authority and make people do whatever you want them to do? Absolutely, if you are in authority. However, don't abuse that. In fact, act out of love. Act out of love It would do us well to follow Paul's example. So out of love, Paul is asking Philemon to receive Onesimus back. He wants there to be reconciliation. He wants things to be made right between Philemon and between Onesimus. And Paul mentions a very important detail. Like He throws this in there almost as like like, like a thought in the back of his head, but it's a crucial point. At some point... Onesimus has become a follower of Christ in Paul's presence. What does it say in verse 10? We can find this in 10 through 13. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Paul is saying Onesimus has committed his life to Christ. He is now following Christ. And we can see this because, Philemon, there's been a change. Onesimus has changed. There's been a change in his heart. There's been transformation. And he goes on to describe it in verse 11 and 12. I appeal to you for my son uh, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. Paul is saying he has gone from being useless to use 
full. He was not valuable, and then he met Christ, and now he has value. He was worthless, he met Christ, now he's worth something. There's actually a play on words here. Onesimus, the the name Onesimus literally means useful. And so what Paul was saying is he didn't live up to his name before. He was a rebellious slave who didn't want anything to do with you or God, who tried to run away. But now now he has met Christ, and now he is useful. Now he's lived up to his name, Onesimus. Useful. In fact, he's become so useful that Paul wanted to keep him for himself. Paul wanted him for himself. He's saying he's become so useful that I wanted to keep him. I wanted him to help me for the sake of the gospel, just like you were doing. Paul says, Philemon, do you remember? Do you remember when you helped me while I was in chains? Do you remember when you yourself helped me for the sake of the gospel? Onesimus has become so useful that if what you think you did was important, he can now fill that position. That's transformation. That is real change. He's changed. This kind of reminds me of uh, a scene from the movie Despicable Me. It's, it's, it's a, yeah, you, you laugh. Just wait till later. Um, I've got, I've got a two-year-old. She's going to be three next March. She loves cartoons, um, and I hide behind that veil. I secretly love them too. Um, but Despicable Me, it's about an evil villain named Gru, G-R-U, Gru, and he wants to be the most evil villain on all the land. And so he hatches, um, he hatches this plan to steal the moon, all right? But in order to steal the moon, he needs to steal a shrink ray, because obviously you can't steal the moon unless you have a shrink ray to shrink it, and then you can put it in your pocket, and you're all good. Another evil villain, I can't remember his name, he had the shrink ray, and as Gru attempted to steal the shrink ray, he found that there was heavy artillery uh, you know, up with, at the, this guy's house. The guy had like sharks with like laser beams and machine guns and all kinds of stuff, so he couldn't get in. So Gru hatches a plan. He goes to the local orphanage, and he, and he, and he gets three little girls who sell Girl Scout cookies. Okay? It's, it's crazy, I know, just bear with me, it'll make sense in a second. The girls then go sell this other villain Girl Scout cookies, and Gru goes and change, steals the shrink ray, or attempts to steal the shrink ray. These girls thought that Gru wanted to be their dad, but in Gru's eyes, he was just using them as little pawns in his grand master scheme. He didn't care about them, he was only using them. Well, the whole movie tells the tale of his relationship with these three little girls. And eventually, his heart changes. His heart changes towards these girls. Before, he didn't think anything of them. He was just using them. But now, he's starting to fall in love with these three little girls. And so there's a scene where he's actually reading um, a book that he wrote himself to these girls. And this book represents the change that has happened in Gru's heart. And I want to read that story that he read to these three little girls. It says this, One big unicorn, strong and free, thought he was as happy as he could be. Then three little kittens came around and turned his whole life upside down. They made him laugh. They made him cry. He never should have said goodbye. 
And now he knows that he could never part from those three little kittens that changed his heart. It's a cute story. But my favorite part of the scene is a girl, right before he reads, says, this is, this is going to be the greatest story ever. This is going to be the best story ever. And Gru responds saying, I may be biased, but yes, I do think it's the greatest story ever. And here, myself, I see that and I said, wow, that is the greatest story ever. Because that's the story of Onesimus. It's the story of Onesimus. Onesimus, strong and free, thought he was as happy as he could be. Then Jesus Christ came around and turned his life upside down. And now he knows that he could never part from Jesus Christ who changed his heart. Onesimus was changed. One day he was walking along life, minding his own business, and he met Jesus. And now his life has changed. His heart has changed. It's the story of everybody that was baptized earlier. You heard it in their stories. I was living my life for myself. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I felt empty. I felt hurt. I felt insecure. I felt pain. And then I met a guy named Jesus. And he changed my life and he changed my heart. And now I'm on a new path, one that's directed by him. That's the entire story of the Bible. Explaining how you are walking on one path. You decide what direction you take. But that direction is taking you away from God. You're living for yourself. And then you meet Jesus and he changes your path. He diverts your path. And all of a sudden you're following God rather than yourself. Perhaps you're still on that old path. And you haven't come across Jesus yet. You've never given him the light of day. You've never even considered it. But maybe this morning you say, yeah, today is the day. I want to know, I want to know who this Jesus is. Because just like we saying, I feel broken. I feel wounded. I feel empty. I feel guilty. I want to be fixed. I want to be healed. I want to be repaired. I want to be pardoned. Want to be filled. You may ask the question, well, how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus take you from one path to the other? Who says he has the power and the authority to do so? How does he do this? Perhaps you've grown up in the church and you've just always known that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and then he rose from the dead and now I follow him so I can go party with God in heaven. That's how it works. Like, that, that's what I've got to believe. And perhaps you're saying, I get it. I understand it, but I don't know how it works. I see that it works, but I don't know why it works. It's like airplanes. I, I'm not very smart. I don't know how you get tons and tons of steel to fly in the air, but I trust that it works, so I get on. And every time I've been on one, it's been okay. I know that it works. I don't know why it works. And I think if we look in verses 17 through 19, we can see why it works. We can see why Christ's sacrifice works. Let's read it again. It says this. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. 
Not to mention that you owe me your very self. So if we jump back to Paul's time and what actually he is saying to Philemon in regards to Onesimus as we return to our story, Paul requests two things from Philemon. Did you spot them? Two things. The first one was welcome him as you would welcome me. Act as if he is me. How do you normally greet your friends? You shake their hand. You give them a hug. Maybe a high five. It's a very warm welcome, isn't it? Now, how do you welcome your enemies? Let's say one of your enemies walks through the door. All of a sudden, things get tense and awkward. Maybe you roll your eyes. Maybe you give a half-hearted handshake. Maybe you turn your back altogether and just pretend they don't even exist, that they're not even there. Paul is saying to Philemon, receive Onesimus as if he's me. Receive him like you would receive me, like you would receive a close friend. Philemon, when he reads this, he's probably thinking, boy, what a slap to Paul's face if I don't receive Onesimus back warmly. Because in turn, that would be like saying, Paul, I don't welcome you. Paul is saying, receive him like you would receive me. And there's a, there, there is even a deeper undertone right here. He's not only, he, Paul isn't merely just saying, hey, just welcome him in. Say, make sure he feels comfortable and say hi to him. What Paul is saying is now that Onesimus is a brother in Christ, receive him like you would receive a family member. Welcome him at the dinner table. Count him as part of your family. Some people in the day when they would read that, they would say, that that's absurd. A slave who ran away, who didn't want anything to do with us, sitting at a dinner table with us? You're, Paul, you're crazy. You are crazy. Once again, my daughter was watching a movie uh, a couple weeks ago called Wreck-It Ralph. Some of you have heard of it. And, and in the movie, it, it takes a Picture, it takes a look at an arcade video game, kind of behind the scenes, and it follows the characters along in the story of Wreck-It Ralph. And Wreck-It Ralph is the bad guy in this particular video game called Fix-It Felix Jr. All right, once again, crazy stuff, cartoons for kids. Wreck-It Ralph wrecks the building, and I guess in the arcade game, it was Fix-It Felix Jr.'s job to fix the building, and then once he fixed the building and avoided Wreck-It Ralph, Fix-It Felix Jr. would go to the top of the building, and they would give him a medal, and everybody would praise him, and Wreck-It Ralph would, like, get thrown off the building and, like, crash into mud. Well, in the movie, Wreck-It Ralph, Ralph is the actual main character. It follows him along, and he, he poses the question, I don't, what if I don't want to be a bad guy anymore? What if I want to be a good guy? What if I want to get a medal? What if I want to be like Fix-It Felix Jr.? And there's one particular scene where they're celebrating and Wreck-It Ralph kind of poses this question to the rest of the people and they have a fascinating response and it's a response that I think that we can relate to. So I'm actually going to show this clip. Check, check out what this would look like. Lemon for Lucy, rum cake for Jean, and for Felix. Hey, Mary. Um... What's the flavor of that mud that I'm stuck in there? Hmm? Oh, a chocolate. I've never been real fond of chocolate. Well, I did not know that. One other little thing. I hate to be picky, but you know this angry little guy here <laughs> might be a lot happier if you put him up here with everyone else. See that? Look at that smile. No, no, no. You see, Ralph, 
There's no room for you up here. <laughs> well, what about this? We can make room. Here, we can take turns. Easy. <gasps> How about we just eat the cake? Hang on. Felix needs to be on the roof because he's about to get his medal. Well, how about we just take that medal and give it to Ralph for once? Would that be the end of the world, Gene? Now you're just being ridiculous. Only good guys win medals. And you, sir, are no good guy. I could be a good guy if I wanted to, and I could win a medal. Uh-huh. And when you do, come and talk to us. And then would you finally let me be on top of the cake with you guys? If you won a medal, we'd let you live up here in the penthouse. But it will never happen, because you're just the bad guy who wrecks the building. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. All right, Gene. You know what? I'm going to win a medal. Oh, I am going to win a medal. Shiniest medal this place has ever seen. A medal that will be so good that it will make Felix's medals wet their pants. And good night. Thank you for the party. Is he serious? Oh, please. Where's a bad guy going to win a medal? Of course. Isn't that how some of us react? Isn't that some, how some of us react to our enemies? We're, we're the good guys, and we're going to stay right here, and we're a family, and you're a bad guy, so you get to stay over there, and, and, and as long as you're over there, and as long as we're over here, we're okay. No, you're bad, we're good, only good guys get medals, and only people with medals can have dinner with us. You, you're not allowed over here. That's what we do sometimes to our enemies. It, that might have been a temptation of Philemon. No, Onesimus, you hurt me. You hurt me, and you cost me substantially. And so I'm not going to receive you back because of what you've done to me. Philemon could have reacted that way. And Paul knows this. And so he tells him, welcome him as you would welcome me, no longer as a slave, but as a brother. No longer as a slave, but a brother. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Consider him like me. The second thing that Paul requests of Philemon is whatever he has cost you, I understand that he may have cost you something, maybe financially, charge it to my account. I, Paul, who's writing this with my own hand, will pay it back. Anything he owes, charge it to my account. One day, uh, when I was probably in fifth or sixth grade, I forgot my lunch money. And I didn't pack a lunch, and so I thought I was just going to go hungry um, <laughs> and I was going to die or something. My teacher told me, uh, go down to the office, and um, I guess it was law that they had to provide lunch money if, if the kids forgot it. I didn't know that at the time. So I go down, and I face my fears because the office lady was, like, super creepy and scared me. If, you, if you're a school office lady, that's probably not you. I, I apologize. But this particular one was. So it freaked me out. And um, I get there and she says, what do you want? <laughs> I'm dead serious. And I'm just like, oh, um, I, I forgot my lunch money. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh. She brings out a pencil box and she opens it up and she brings out a, a pink or a purple card and she asks me what my name is. She writes my name down and then she just gives me the $2.10 that I need. And I'm like, it's just like that? You're just, you're just giving money away? <laughs> 
all right. And so I go to my lunch, and over lunch that day, I remember thinking, wait a minute, the school's just giving out money? Like, of course they need tax levies. They're handing out money, right? And so I think, well, ice cream is 50 cents. If I bring my own lunch, and then I go and tell them I lost my lunch, don't, don't do this, guys. It's not good. It wasn't a good thing that I did this. I thought, if I just bring my lunch money, and I go and tell them I lost my lunch money, they'll give me $2.10. I'll go buy my ice cream for 50 cents, and then I'll pocket like a buck 60, whatever's left, and I'll be rolling in the dough before I know it. Um, about a month later, I get a letter that I have to take home to my mom. And generally, if there was a letter that you had to take home to your mom, it didn't, it wasn't a good thing. And my mom opened it up, and apparently, I had to pay all of it back. I, I didn't know this. And I owed like $30 <laughs> over the course of a month. And, um, <laughs> and my allowance at the time was only like $5 a week, so I paid it off like pretty much for the rest of my life. If Paul was around at the time, he would have told the creepy old office lady, hey, whatever Mike owes you, I will pay it. I will pay it for you. This is what he does with Onesimus. I understand Onesimus has cost you, Philemon. I will pay it. I will pay it on his behalf. Paul is willingly paying a debt that he doesn't have to pay. Paul is willingly paying a debt that he does not have to pay. This is the ultimate sign of love, doing something that you don't have to. It's a perfect example for us on how we love others. Love can be defined, biblical love can be defined as putting others' interests first, before your own, even at your own expense. Putting others' interests first before your own, even at your own expense. Not only loving people when it's convenient, not only loving people when it's easy, but loving people even if it costs you. Even if it costs you. If you are a Christ follower here today, we need to follow Paul's example and love others. It doesn't matter their status. It doesn't matter if we have authority over them. We need to love them, even at our own expense. And the main reason we do, as Paul says, as Paul has instructed Philemon, the main reason, guys, that we forgive is because Christ forgave us. Paul's action on behalf of Onesimus is a perfect illustration for Jesus' action on behalf of us. Paul's action is a perfect illustration of Jesus' action. Do you know that you, yes, you, owe a debt to God? God created us to be with him. But then we chose our own way. You chose your own way And by choosing your own way, you've become rebellious. And because you're rebellious, you owe God. You owe God. Just like Onesimus owed Philemon. And you can't repay this debt. You cannot repay this debt by doing good things. By being a good enough person. By having perfect attendance at church. Not even by reading your Bible every day. There's nothing that you can do. Well, there is one thing you can do to repay this debt. It's called death. 
we would call it a spiritual death. A spiritual death is the only way that this debt that you owe can be paid. It comes from the the classic uh, verse from Romans 6.23. If you haven't memorized this, I would encourage you to do so. For the wages of sin is death. What are wages? If I worked for you and I vacuumed carpets or I cleaned windows and you would say, Mike, your work has earned you this wage, this X amount of money. You get your $5 allowance for doing what you've done. That is your wage. Wages can also be dealt out people for, for doing bad things, what we would call sin. What you get for your sin is death, is spiritual death. That is the debt, that, that is how you can repay your debt. That doesn't, that doesn't sound good. If you're anything like me, you're thinking, that sounds not fun. I, I don't want to experience spiritual death. Because it's not. It's separation from God when we were designed to be with God. But thankfully, there's the rest of that verse. For the wages of sin and death, but, the best word, but, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You owed a debt that could only be paid through a spiritual death. But God loves you. He loves you so much that he says, I do not want you to experience that spiritual death. But we have a problem because God is all loving and perfect in his love. But he has to punish sin. There's no way around it because he's fair and just. If you're any kind of sports fan, you have fallen victim to what we would call the blind referee. What do you mean that was a strike? What do you mean he didn't catch the ball? Are you blind? You're the worst referee on the face of the planet. You, it's just, you're just not fair. You're just, you're just, being, you're just unfair. Of course. If referees make bad calls, it's not fair. It's not fair. God, though is the perfect referee. He's the perfect umpire. He's the perfect judge. There is no decision that God has ever made or will make that is not fair. Every decision he makes is perfectly fair and just. And so God is sitting here saying, I I have to punish sin because I'm perfect. I'm perfect, and so I have to punish sin but I love you enough that I don't want you to get punished. You may sit here and think, how can can all these bad people get away with what they're doing in the world? How can can there be people that are murdering other people and get off scot-free? How is that fair? What is God doing for those people? This is not fair. I would encourage you to broaden the horizons a little bit and know, guys, that sin has to be punished. And so their punishment is coming. It is coming. But God in his grace and mercy loves them, even them, so much that he doesn't want them to experience that penalty, that punishment. And so in his grace and mercy, he's waiting. He is waiting to bring about punishment. And so God sits here and he says, I'm all loving. I don't want my people, my creation to be punished, but I am all just. I have to punish sin. We have a dilemma, don't we? So God has a plan. He 
He comes up with a plan and he said, I am going to punish every single sin that's ever been committed, but I'm going to provide an escape route. I'm going to provide an escape route. When I was little, uh, my family went to Universal Studios uh, in Florida, and we got in line for the Jaws ride. Now, I was just tiny. If you're not familiar with the Jaws ride, it's about this shark that comes and attacks a boat that you're on, and then somebody, like, harpoons it, and it dies, and everybody's okay in the end. And it's all a ride. It's good fun. But as a little kid, I'm freaking out about this. Um, I'm like, what in the world? I don't want to go through that. And so about halfway through the line, I wimp out. I said, no, that's not for me. I'm like crying, right? Because <laughs> I don't want to experience this ride. Thankfully, there was a conveniently placed exit door that I could walk out and avoid the impending doom of the Jaws ride in the end. Such is life. In a sense, we are waiting in line. We are waiting in line. But the end of this line folks, is not a fun ride. It's punishment for all the sin we've ever committed because God has to do it because he's just. But thankfully, we have an escape route. We have an escape route that God himself has provided in the form of Jesus Christ. And this is how it works. This is how it works. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, my debt, everything that I owed, was put on his account. And he was treated the way that I should have been treated so that I could be treated the way he should be treated. He was treated how I should be treated so that I could be treated the way he should be treated. He was put on a cross like I should have been and I was glorified like he should have been. And that way, when I stand before God, And when you stand before God, if you have committed your life to Christ, if you believe in your heart and proclaim with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, when you stand before God, Jesus will be able to say, your name is cleared because I've paid his debt. He no longer owes you anything because I have paid it for him. I have paid it for her. And God will look at you in all of his glory, and he will welcome you. He will embrace you, because when he looks at you, he now sees Jesus Christ in all of his righteousness. But let me warn you, if you died today, and I wouldn't want to wish it on anybody, but if you died today, and you do not believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you still have a debt to pay you still have a debt to pay. Your name has not been cleared. Is that you? Have you let Christ clear your name before an almighty God? If you haven't, don't leave today without doing so. My favorite part of this book probably comes in verse 15 through 16, and we'll close with this. Paul writes, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Paul is saying, perhaps Onesimus, the reason God let Philemon, or excuse me, perhaps Philemon, the reason God let Onesimus run, perhaps the reason why God let Onesimus 
run away from you and rebel was because that is what it was going to take for him to open his eyes. That is what it was going to take. You saw earlier in the service, we had Carlos get baptized. And if you caught in his testimony at the very beginning, he said, my father died when I was a baby. And that's what it took for my mom to be serious about Christ. Carlos's mom helps us out on our youth group, so I know this story a little bit more. She was telling me about it on Thursday, and she said it was painful, it hurt, it was hard. But that's what it took for Christ to open up my eyes. And perhaps that can be said of you this morning. Maybe you just come here for the music. Maybe you come here because your friends come here. Maybe you came here because somebody you knew was getting baptized and you didn't understand it, but you decided to come to support. Maybe you came here because you wanted to hear a sermon about monsters from our senior pastor and you got the youth pastor instead. (laughs) Maybe you came because your mom's been badgering you to come to church for months and maybe if I just come one week, it'll get her off my case for a while. Maybe that's why you came. But God had something else in mind for you. Perhaps God is calling out to you right now and saying, follow Christ. If that's you, I would encourage you uh, to come forward just after service is done. We'll have elders and myself will be down here and we would be happy to pray with you and answer any questions that you have. Uh, But I would encourage you, come and talk with us so that we can tell you and show you from God's word what that looks like. And maybe in a couple months, you'll be standing in this pool saying, I was on my path, living life for myself, and then I met Jesus, and he's changed my life.